0: More government efforts to help with the high cost of rent. Formula One roars into Hard Rock Stadium and a maestro picks up his baton one last time in Miami. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Miami-Dade and Broward counties are taking more action in hopes of helping renters stay in their homes if they face big rent increases. Meantime, housing discrimination complaints are on the rise in the hot housing market. The global spotlight of F1 racing comes to Miami Gardens this week. It has all the glam of a Miami sports spectacle, but some wanted the race to hit the brakes. Plus, it is the end of an arts era this weekend when New World Symphony co-founder and artistic director Michael Tilson Thomas conducts his last program after 34 years. Our program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio here in our region. The high cost of real estate and rising rents is up first on the Roundup. This week, Miami-Dade and Broward counties both took steps to help renters dealing with sudden and big rent increases. Miami-Dade County passed a Tenants Bill of Rights. Broward County now requires landlords to give more time before raising rents by more than 5%. With housing costs increasing, so too have complaints about housing discrimination. According to NBC6 investigation, housing discrimination allegations have been on the rise in Miami-Dade County. In the first three months of 2022, 19 of the 82 complaints filed to the Miami-Dade Commission on Human Rights were housing-related, almost one in four. So housing... The high cost of housing and high rents begin the Florida Roundup again this week. We want to hear from you, tenants, landlords. Are you looking to buy, looking to rent, having trouble? You've been successful. Share your stories and experiences with us here live on this Friday, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Landlords, we want to hear from you. Tenants, we want to hear from you. Same phone number for everybody, 800-743-9576. You can also share your thoughts. We're monitoring our uh, Twitter handle, at WLRN. Phil Prazen is with us, NBC6 policy, politics, and government investigative reporter. Phil, welcome back to The Roundup. Nice to have you again.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to hear from you. So
0: tell us what you found regarding housing discrimination complaints in Miami-Dade County.
1: So there's this little known office within the Miami-Dade County government called the Miami-Dade Commission on Human Rights. And it has about uh, you know, 11, 12 staff members. So it's not huge, but they take in all types of complaints of discrimination. Now, some of those are housing discriminations. And Mostly because they, they specify that specifically because Miami-Dade County has local ordinances that are different from the state, like mm. the state for the state. It's against the law uh, for housing to discriminate on um, sex, race, age, kind of the basics. But here in Miami-Dade County, it's also against the law to discriminate uh, when it comes to housing for like um, sexual orientation, gender identity and source of income, which uh has also been on the rise and that source of income discrimination is usually people discriminating against folks with government assistance or on housing choice vouchers um and so what we found we, through public records request is that the the housing complaints into this office are increasing at a faster rate this year compared to last year
0: yeah uh, Give us a sense, Phil, of what those complaints are. What What's the nature of those complaints, but those that are associated to housing and and income, alleging income discrimination? So we talked to
1: uh, a woman who lives in Miami Gardens now with her parents um, because she uh, she believes that she was discriminated against by this uh, by an apartment complex uh, for her source of income, she applied to uh, live in an apartment uh, complex with a housing choice voucher. Uh, she did not uh, get accepted into the uh, uh, into that apartment complex, and she believes that they did not want to take mm-hmm. her because of her. she got her money from a housing choice mm-hmm. voucher for government help. Um, it's it is a little complicated on the details. Uh, the apartment complex, uh, Complex Horizon North Apartments. Uh, denies uh, her claim of discrimination. But this is what the Office of the Commission on Human Rights really looks into some of these specific complaints.
0: What is the the legal threshold or what are they looking for when deciding whether or not a a discrimination complaint uh, may have some validity?
1: Well, and so this is is where it it could get into a thorough process because they have to prove kind of intent that they discriminated against her uh on purpose because of this and that could be hard to find as as a smoking gun Mm -hmm. right like a lot of discrimination complaints are really hard to prove so what uh the the director of the miami dade commission on human rights says most of the time happens is there's some type of a mediation process right they 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 are the um kind of the third party that brings the two warring factions together Mm -hmm. to kind of work out some type of a compromise and that's what they're doing they're currently investigating Uh, and working through Mrs. Guyton's case right now.
0: Phil, stick with us because we got plenty more to talk about when it comes to local government policy response to uh, the high cost of housing. Phil Prey an investigative reporter for NBC6 is with us. Michael Butler joining our conversation. Michael is a business and real estate reporter with our news partner, the Miami Herald. Michael, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Nice to have you.
2: Uh, Thank you for having me today. Thank you for having me. This is a very important subject to speak
0: on. Oh, it's entirely a very important subject and one that affects uh, all of us. Uh, certainly, uh, the high cost of living here in South Florida. Michael, tell us what the Miami Dade Commissioners approved this week: this tenants' bill of rights.
2: Before tenants had virtually no rights, uh, and we came to their living situation, their landlords in Miami Dade. So we got things like protections for withholding rents and paper to go to repairs. Uh, landlords are now banned from asking about past evictions on rent applications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, landlords are now required to notify tenants of a new property building. So these are just a, a few of the new things that have been added on. But, I mean, it behooves me to imagine that these things didn't already exist. But, you know, here we are. I mean, as you all know, just a couple of weeks ago now, uh, Mayor, the Miami-Dade Mayor, Mayor Kava declared a housing affordability crisis. Mm-hmm. And the core of all of this is an issue that is affecting people of all financial backgrounds.
0: Uh, Michael you the the connections here is a little tough we're going to try to reconnect with you uh but uh stick with us Michael Butler Miami Herald business and real estate reporter Phil Prazen, NBC six policy politics government investigative reporter uh is with us uh your phone calls your experiences about the high cost of rent the high cost of housing here in South Florida 80743 wlrn 8074395. 76. Jason is uh, listening in Boynton Beach on line three. Jason, thanks for calling. You're on the radio.
3: Hi, thanks for letting me speak. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, share your experience, please.
3: Well, I am call- I actually live in Boynton Beach. I'm in Palm Beach County. Yep. And um, what you guys are talking about that they're trying to do in, in Broward and Dade, I I don't think they're doing anything like that here. Where, where we live
2: in our neighborhood, we've been there for years
0: Uh, Jason, we lost your cell there as well. Stick with us. We'll try to come back to you here. But, Phil, I think what uh, Jason in in Palm Beach County was going to mention is that we've seen some of these responses by local governments here in Dade County and in Broward County specifically regarding notification of rent increases. That's what Broward County did uh, this week and what Dade County has done previously is to give more time uh, for a tenant to uh, work with the landlord after landlord decides to raise rents by five percent what 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 can you share with us about kind of the early impact of that kind of policy change here
1: well i think what is really interesting uh, here in South Florida that's happening, uh, we're, we're kind of seeing the limits of what local government can do. State law really favors the landlords. And so, as you've seen with the Tenants' Bill of Rights, with these notifications um, of rental increases, it's really just information, right? It's, it's, it's providing the tenants with more information for them, them to go and make a decision um, you know, file a complaint, hire a lawyer. What local governments in South Florida cannot do is really stop or slow the rental increases. And that's because state law doesn't allow that. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, we've done some past reporting on this, and there's really only been one effort to uh, add rent control. And that was in the 1970s that they did it. And then they ended up in uh, the city of Miami Beach, end up losing in court. It's really hard for uh, local governments to stop or slow the rents. There have been no efforts that have been successful uh, since that time. So that's what's unique about it, is it's really just all they can do is give you more information.
0: Uh, More information, and in some cases, uh, rental assistance. We have seen some local governments, Dade County, Hialeah, for instance, providing some rental assistance. And then, of course, the conversation is on the supply side, right? The way that uh, uh, local regulators may be able to impact the cost of rent is about the number of apartments that are available to be rented. And of course, that is not a short term uh, answer. Ian, listening in, and Coral Gables. Ian was uh, early in the uh, conversation here calling in, wanting to have his voice heard. Go ahead, Ian. You're on the radio.
4: Hi, Tom. I, I don't know uh, if my question will be answered. It's not exactly an easy one. Um, often uh, you hear about illegal units. Um, uh, how does the Tenant Bill of Rights affect illegal units? Um, does it cover them at all? And then just to what uh, I forgot his name is, the reporter from NBC6 said about local government not really having that much control, um, zoning has such a big control on housing prices. And when you have 87 percent of Dade County being uh, single-family homes, that kind of plays a role into it.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Ian, I appreciate the, the uh, two uh, issues there. The first question about uh, illegal uh, apartments, illegal units. Michael Butler, a business reporter with the Miami Herald, is back with us. Uh, Michael, Ian from Coral Gables was asking whether or not the new Dade County Tenants Bill of Rights affects illegal units in the county. I can't imagine it would, given that the units themselves are illegal, hard to regulate something that's illegal until it comes under the umbrella of the regulations. But uh, Michael, what what it, what has been the conversation and, and, and even the, the, uh, the thoughts around the issue of illegal units in Dade County? So
2: that's an excellent question. I think it still very early to assess how the county is going to, you know, regard those illegal units because, as you just said, they are exactly illegal. But the hope is that the county can take these homes into account because people live in these homes. And I think before these you new know, guidelines are passed, we would just often, it also, you would get the impression that, like, Local government did not care about tenant's rights whatsoever. So hopefully, these illegal units will be considered when we start thinking about you know new guidelines for tenants.
0: Yeah, Phil. What about the local policy conversation regarding the supply side, the longer-term response? Uh, uh, I've done plenty of reporting on this, as have you, and I know Michael has as well. And oftentimes, the real estate experts will say it's really difficult, if not impossible, to address. Uh, housing affordability at the height of housing affordability <laughs> that this is uh you know it's a 5 10 15 year kind of time frame in order to address housing supply
1: uh that's that's a that's a great perspective and a great question uh, a couple things I'll say about this um Zoning, uh, like Ian brought up, is I think going to be really challenging um, because and this is just a structural problem in South Florida. We are very, very decentralized in Miami-Dade County. There are, what, 34 different cities in Broward County. There are 30 different cities. Mm -hmm. And so depending on where you are, the rules could be different Um, and zoning battles, not just in South Florida, but really all over the country are some of the toughest battles uh, to change zoning laws. Um, just because, you know, uh, people buy their homes with the idea that is it's going to this neighborhood is going to be like this for 20, 30, 40 years and changing how that neighborhood looks gets really personal and so it gets really um, difficult to change those zoning laws. However, uh, I mean, it, like in the city of Miami, city leaders really do encourage more construction um, the problem, though, I think that's driving a lot of this affordability uh, crisis is the new construction. They're, they're luxury apartments, right, right? They're, right? Many people might not think that they are affordable, but they are um, responding to the private market and people from out of town are going to move in. And these out of towners have a lot of money yeah. compared to people in South Florida.
0: It's an important point, Phil. It's not just the supply of uh, housing. It's also the type of housing that is uh, involved here Michael Butler with the uh, with the Miami Herald uh, zoning is uh, is quickly a big part of this conversation here in an area where when we talk about zoning, what we're what we're really need to get into that conversation is higher density zoning. And there have been some efforts uh, in some neighborhoods for higher density. And as uh, Phil points out, oftentimes for longtime uh, residents that can be that can be resisted. What, what is the nature of the zoning conversation as we're seeing some of these uh, some of these notification responses uh, come about from local governments in terms of how landlords need to uh, communicate to tenants about higher rents?
5: I mean,
2: ultimately, I think the sentiment is starting to be felt at the you know, the local government level that, you know, simply put, tenants are not just commodities. You know, tenants need to know if the landlord is going to have a rate hike, if the landlord is, you know, selling property to a whole, new, whole other landlord. Because in the past, these things were not communicated. But when you mentioned the density, one of the biggest concerns, though, is that a lot of new guidelines, they function to serve people that are already in homes, right, mm-hmm. that already have housing. But I don't think enough of the concern, of, rather, I don't think the research shows that enough of the concern is not being given towards people who are, are losing their house. Right. And I think you look at miami Bay. You know, we uh, you know, just have been on the head. We have a lot of people moving from you know, up north. So you're talking about the New York area, East Coast, as far out as the West Coast. And they're bringing those salaries with them to South Florida. Now, imagine in a city where I believe the median average income is around
6: $38,000 and only
2: 8% of residents can afford to own a home, you have a huge disconnect. Yeah. And so, you know, while I report on tech and I, I am an advocate for innovation, you know, one thing I'm always wondering is like, well, how many of these tech jobs will go to existing residents, or how many of these opportunities are going to be skilled in Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if people can't afford to live here, the bigger question is, where would these long-time miami Bay
0: residents go? That's right. Yeah, the, 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 the brain drain, the loss of those economic opportunities here. Let's go to Robert on line four. Uh, Robert, thanks for listening. You're on the radio. Hello. Hello, Robert. Go ahead.
7: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've been doing in Palm Beach County is trying to adjust our zoning through the comprehensive plan. But at the end of the day, it's like carrying water in a colander. It just keeps on, you know, leaking out. Supply and demand are so so far out of balance. Uh, we're just uh, fighting a losing battle.
0: We should we should point out, I believe, Robert this is Robert Weinroth, the the mayor of Palm Beach County. Is that correct?
7: That's correct.
0: All right. Well, it's a, you know we, we we welcome all kinds of listeners here on the uh, conversation every Friday. So, Mayor Weinroth, uh, uh, carrying uh, the colander of water, as like trying to change zoning. Uh, share with us, you know, Jason in Boynton Beach mentioned earlier, uh, you know, he'd like to see uh, some some more help there uh, as, as he's facing a, uh, a rent increase of, I believe, 25 percent.
7: Well, look, as as one of your calls already said, rent control is very difficult in Florida. It's really out of our control to try and stop the landlords from increasing rent. We've had some of our uh, municipalities... At least put in a situation where you have to, as a landlord, give a notice before you're going to have an increase over 5%. But I think it goes back to the original problem of we've got to raise up the, the value of, our, of the employees so that they can get a higher salary, which means we have to deal with literacy, which means we also have to be putting more housing stock out there so that we can be addressing the fact that with supply and demand so far out of balance we're just not going to be able to stop the rent increases or the increases in in home values that are are pushing these values up 40
0: percent. Mayor Weinroth thanks for listening and calling appreciate your voice here today. Thank you. Uh, Let's go to uh, Don in Pompano Beach we want to hear one more voice here Uh, Don thanks for listening you're a landlord property owner is that correct?
8: Thank you for having me on. Yeah,
0: sure. Go ahead. Your perspective here.
8: So, I try to be fair. I I have a couple of rental properties that we used to live in and then hung on to and we rent them out. And I try to be fair with my rent, but between the taxes, because, you know, it's not my homestead, and the insurance that is outrageous, I'm actually in a position now with both properties I'm losing money every month.
0: Mm. So, share with us those those, those price inputs. uh, uh, Property taxes are certainly not going up by 25% uh, a year. No,
8: but when it's when it's not your house anymore, right? You
0: well, I understand. Regular- you don't you don't have the homestead exemption, but but are you still saying your property taxes are increased by 25,
8: 30% without the homestead exemption because it 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 doesn't you don't get that protection anymore. So it like goes back.
0: Gotcha. You see what I mean? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And, and your insurance costs. In and, and there, you're talking about structural insurance, not content insurance. Correct. And so how Correct. are you balancing those higher input costs with the, the well, price to rent?
8: I'm trying to, you know, keep them reasonable and realize that I'm lucky enough to own property. And I just take the hit every month of a few hundred dollars. But it's frustrating.
0: Don, I appreciate you sharing that perspective of the landlord with us. Uh, much appreciated here on the uh, South Florida Roundup. Uh, Michael, what do you think there? Michael Butler with the Miami Herald. What do you think we just uh, heard there? Is that, that landlord perspective, uh, listen, the, the price input uh, continues to go up, and they've got to cover their costs. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: And, you know, and again, here, here's my reporter, your perspective so you know you're hearing the landlord saying like okay I'm taking a hit of maybe a couple hundred few hundred every month and it's frustrating. Now, and you have tenants who can already already barely afford to live in their home, and they're seeing rate hikes go up like two hundred three hundred four hundred dollars in their own right. And so at the end of the day, you know I also, you know I continue to wonder like how people who are seeing their rent go up tightly overnight yeah. are able to continue to manage. And a lot of sources, if people I've been speaking to for reporting have simply just said, like, yeah, I, I it's just, I can't deal. Like, right. you know, I, I I can't deal. And so, while I, I still understand, you know, the landlord's perspective, uh, you know, doing business is that much more difficult now for them because of the guidelines. Uh, there are a lot of people that they're not living on the streets are seriously telling me, hey, Mike. I'm, I'm going to have to go like further north. I might have to leave Florida altogether. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, uh, Joanne and Sunrise, we want to hear one more perspective uh, from you. Thanks for calling. You are on the radio.
9: Yes, yes hi, good day. My uh, comment or question is, why does it seem as though the landlords are being squeezed? I mean, you would think that this is more of a wage issue because we do say and recognize that the cost of living is going up. So why is it not expected that rent or you know will go up. Also, the large apartment complex complexes can withstand you know the higher rents, but it seems the smaller landlords, you know, you we're against them saying no, you can't raise your rent when they too have expenses. So we need to really consider uh, wage increases rather than penalize the small. You know, landlord who may have,
8: you know, one or two property,
0: yeah, Joanne, appreciate that uh, perspective. Uh, Phil Prazen with Nbc six. it's it's a balancing act, but there's more than just two pieces here to balance, right? I mean, there are uh, the 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 cost of land, the cost of property, insurance taxes. there is uh, the wages, right that the economy is uh, is supporting of local jobs. There's the outside influence with the work from anywhere. Uh, uh you know trend that uh, the pandemic triggered here and then of course uh, at the end of the day you have the uh, the ability to of what someone uh what someone can build into the future the, the simply the supply here
1: totally and let's let's zoom out i think all of this is a consequence of a changing market a changing community in South Florida. Mm. So to talk on what that caller was talking about and then a little bit about what Michael Butler was talking about, about people saying that they have to move out of South Florida. Check this out. As it we as it, it appears, we hear about it all the time, how people are moving to South Florida from New York, from California, from kind of the bigger northern cities. However, the this just last month, the, the latest update from the census showed that people uh, that left Miami-Dade County. It was a net uh, exporter right. of people, which, and where are they going? They're going to uh, the Orlando area, yeah. the I-4 yeah. area. They're going north. So what yeah. I think is happening, I mean, it's you have people with money coming in and you have low-income folks moving out. It's just a changing community.
0: Yeah, and, and it's a fascinating statistic in that it, uh, South Floridians who are leaving are still staying in Florida, but leaving the high-cost area here in South Florida, contributing, by the way, to raising cost of living that uh, other communities are certainly experiencing, Tampa, Orlando, and others. Phil Prasley with the NBC6 investigative reporter. Phil, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Michael Butler, uh, a uh, business and real estate reporter with our news partner, the Miami Herald, here on the South Florida Roundup. To each of you, thanks for your time. Still to come, Formula One in Miami. Okay, technically Miami Gardens, we know. Let's talk about it here. 800-743-WLRN. Are you an F1 fan? Let's hear from you. 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting public broadcasting here in South Florida. Speed, agility, endurance, and Yes, a fake marina. Formula One racing has come to Hard Rock Stadium in South Florida. The drivers and fans will be inside the stadium complex itself, but the spectacle of the racing and South Florida will be worldwide, certainly, even as the noise spills out into the surrounding areas of Miami Gardens. It will be a picture of contrast. Inside the race, a beachside pool. In the infield, Luxury Row. There's, yes, even that fake marina at turn eight, complete with yachts and phony water. And then there's the host city, Miami Gardens, with a poverty rate that is almost double the average in the United States. So what do you make of F1 coming to South Florida? Fan or foe? 800-743-WLRN. Your phone calls here on this Friday. 800-743-9576 to join our conversation. Let's say hello to Isaiah Smalls, Miami Herald reporter, back with us. Isaiah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for your time. Isaiah, you're with us. Yeah, so give us some quick history. How did F1 wind up coming to Hard Rock Stadium?
5: Wow, it's a, it's been a long time coming. Um, I know that I've only been at the Herald three years, but this was an issue that kind of dated back even before that. So first things first, you know, they wanted to have – f1 downtown miami Mm -hmm. um i believe running around biscayne boulevard however the residents objected to it Um, they didn't want the noise the air pollution the traffic it was just too much so they said hey we don't want it Um, the county ended up moving it to hard rock stadium where racing is in fact zoned Um, however some miami gardens residents didn't want it for the same reason the air pollution the noise pollution and then just how much traffic And a bit like this will bring. Um, And so, after a few court cases, you know, the judge basically ruled um, against the residents, allowing the F1 race to happen this weekend. Um, However, the judge did allow some of the residents to conduct, will allow, excuse me, some of the residents to conduct their own noise Mm -hmm. test to really see you know, how bad that
0: noise is. Yeah, tell us a little about the, the kind of legal fights here. There were a couple of different strategies that opponents in Miami Gardens had used. There was a racial discrimination lawsuit filed, and then a, a lawsuit filed that uh, that was concentrated on essentially noise pollution.
5: Yes, yes. So the first one that you mentioned, the racial discrimination lawsuit, basically um, they the residents alleged that, you know, because of Miami-Dade's long history of the treatment of black folks, they thought that this was, you know, part of that same um, history. You know, um, Miami Gardens is a neighborhood that is primarily black. It is the largest black city south of Atlanta, largest black city in the state of Florida, mm-hmm. um, and so primarily black city. So um, they believe that this was being forced upon them because, you know, the demographics of downtown Miami is obviously markedly different from here in Miami Gardens. So they attacked that angle first. And then, as you mentioned, um, you know, the the judge kind of threw that case out, and the most recent one that was, uh, you know, uh, dismissed was focused on the noise pollution. Uh, They thought that the noise is going to be so loud. They had conducted a few tests um, and said that the actual tests that the Formula One conducted weren't necessarily true. However, um, you know, the judges did not rule in their favor, but, you know, said that this lawsuit can continue after the race is held, you know, this weekend. So,
0: um, yes. Yeah, so the, the, the race has tried to craft a local message uh, and to have some benefits to Miami Gardens. What are some of those, and has that you know, calmed the waters, I suppose, of some of those opponents uh, of F1 coming to Miami Gardens?
5: So in terms of some of the things, I believe what you're mentioning is the community benefits package. Mm-hmm. Um, basically included in that was some opportunities to get some local kids, um, some STEM training. Um, you know, the, the Miami Gardens uh, government itself got some money to, um, you know, do some neighborhood improvement things. And then, but unfortunately that did not, well not even unfortunately, uh, to the, you know, ideas of some of the residents that didn't really change their their ideas um they still believe that this race is being forced upon them um and you know they they still don't want it i was talking to some activists earlier today and you know they still are planning to fight the fight is not over um now how that will play out today tomorrow and sunday you know still remains to be seen um the residents that i talked to weren't necessarily planning on protesting today however you know they very well could be out there on on Sunday by the time the race actually sure. starts. I know today and tomorrow are, are just practices, but you know I think it offers a good at least initial starting point to see how loud it truly is going to be. We are t minus fifty four minutes yeah. from the start
0: yeah. of, of practices, practice. <laughs> right, so right. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, as we're speaking live here, uh, you're right. Less than an hour before uh, uh, kind of the first. Uh, green light, the flag doesn't uh, drop necessarily as these with these trials. Um, but uh, this is—so uh, the opponents, uh, uh, as well as supporters, right? This is a 10-year deal for Formula Ten One years. racing in yeah. Miami. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
5: So the idea is that, you know, I, if I could get into the mind of some of the activists uh, real quick, I, I believe their thinking is, okay, you know, we might have lost the, the battle— initially but we're not going to lose the war mm. um and so that's why they're still going to keep coming because as you mentioned it's 10 years you know, this will be in miami gardens for quite some time yeah. and so depending on how um the noise levels are this weekend you know they might have uh, a better case mm. um they could if i believe if i'm quoting the the uh judge correctly essentially the reason why you know he wanted them to be able to take the test now um is so that it could you know help improve their argument right um when it comes time
0: again isaiah smalls reporter for our news partner the miami herald less than an hour away from uh the first uh cars spinning around the turns uh, around hard rock stadium for formula one the miami uh the miami race here isaiah will g- let you get to it get to uh get to that place where you need to be to monitor that let's hear some f- phone calls coral gables uh, has uh chris listening in online too go ahead chris you're on the radio
3: good afternoon thanks for taking my call of course i um I'm very much a fan of F1 coming here. Uh, it is a global race circuit. It is involved in some of the, the highest paid athletes in the world are the drivers of these cars, and they are, you know, completely embracing Miami as you see what's going on here. Many of, many of the former famous racers live here in Miami or <laughs> yeah. Miami Beach, yeah. at least part-time. But more importantly, I think, just like Super Bowl is a wonderful promotion for the city and the county and south florida in general just like our annual boat shows or art festivals or anything that comes along that gets us high ranking global attention is very very good for for miami in general for south florida a lot for tourism income but i've also seen two sides of the coin now you were talking earlier and the gentleman you were speaking to a moment ago about the reaction from this uh people who are against this mm-hmm. there's two sides to that coin i've seen on local television residents of miami gardens being interviewed by local television reporters many of whom at least half of them anyway so that's good non-biased news reporting are, are all for it they think it's a great thing yes so, so three four five days yes i've heard that traffic is bad but traffic's bad here all the time and it gets worse when we have events of this nature but what's really good about this or a Super Bowl, or a boat show, is that it brings people and attention and glamour to South
0: Florida. Yeah. Chris, I appreciate uh, you uh, uh, adding your voice to this conversation. Sounds like you're in your car right now. That may be a turn signal we're hearing, right, Chris? Sorry about that. That, That's quite all right. You're a good driver, then. Use your turn signal. Just be sure to turn it off. There it all is. We'll let you get going, Chris and Coral Gables. Uh, Josh is listening in in... uh, in uh hollywood uh a second mayor calling in today here on the south florida roundup, different issue all mayor levy of uh hollywood thanks for listening and calling go ahead sure
4: good to have you all uh so look uh listening to the conversation I uh, want to really echo uh the sentiments of the previous caller when we look at the economic impact of f1 uh, it certainly goes far beyond uh the area of of the race itself uh, uh one hotel in my city that is hosting one team um, I asked the general manager how many rooms, he said 250 rooms. Um, so you multiply that by all the teams and all the flights and all the equipment coming in and all the fans coming in. I have friends uh, from Colorado and, and people, you know, that are flying in from around the country to be here for this. Uh, those jobs that are serving and providing income to the low-income neighbors of the stadium uh, are being supported by this race. And So I think we have to look at everything as a community as a whole and realize that while there might be you know a traffic and noise let's call it nuisance for a weekend the the benefits economically for every level of our of our community uh... economically uh... is is very significant uh... and so I think we should all keep that in mind uh, i want to also let everyone know that uh... visit lauderdale I'm, I'm on the board of, uh, of our uh, visit lauderdale uh, uh, advisory board and uh... we are sponsoring uh... a Grand Prix beach party uh, free of charge to anyone in the community, both Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, where they'll have interactive experiences, um, you know, throughout the days uh, related to the Grand Prix, and also uh, an ability to view the race with other fans at Las Olas Oceanside Park uh, this weekend on Sunday, so lots uh, happening. Also, uh, in Hollywood, it happens to be that the uh, Canadian consulate had contacted me and said that it would be... A uh, special thing for them to have an opportunity to remember an F1 driver who was killed in an F1 race uh, 40 years ago. His name was Gilles Villeneuve. Uh, he was a Canadian hero driver, uh, lost his life in F1, and tomorrow, Saturday at 11 a.m., um, in front of the Margaritaville Banshell on Hollywood Beach, there's going to be a uh, a memorial ceremony mm. for him. He was a Ferrari driver, so he'll be a Ferrari on display as well. And so you know, lots of people, the more I learn about F1, lots of people... Uh, are passionate about it. Oh, yeah. and, uh, There's uh, a worldwide... Uh, audience
0: so indeed i'm I'm glad that we're a part of it uh mayor levy well thanks for listening here to wlrn and adding your voice to it. it is a global phenomenon formula one if you're unaware of it racing on all six continents through the season and that race comes through miami gardens this weekend here in south florida we got more to come here on the south florida roundup talking about the final bow for a miami maestro 800-743-wlrn our phone number here on the south florida roundup more to come Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson.
3: One, two, bop, 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 bop. you better put your right hand back in. There. Okay, five, nine.
0: A generation ago, Michael Tilson Thomas helped put Miami on the map for orchestral music and training. The next generation of musicians, he co-founded the New World Symphony. He's been artistic director since the beginning.
6: So it's and
3: one.
0: This is MTT rehearsing in 2016 for his own composition called Four Preludes on Playthings of the Wind. Well, this weekend, after 34 years as artistic director, he will pick up the baton as the orchestra's artistic director one last time before becoming artistic director laureate. It's uh, quite the achievement here. A full generation of uh, Miami artists uh, can certainly point to the New World Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas and his leadership for their artistic development, not only here in South Florida, but worldwide. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number, to uh, add your voice to our conversation here. 800-743-9576. Marcellia Suhova. Uh, Suhotska is with us now, a a percussion fellow at the New World Symphony. Uh, Thanks for spending a little bit of time here on this Friday with us. Uh, Why did you want to become a New World Symphony fellow?
10: Well, hello, everybody. My name is Marcelina, and it was a dream of mine to be a part of the New World Symphony for a very, very long time. I think I first heard about it when I was like in middle school or high school, And it just sounded like the place to be. Um, I heard that musicians that have gone through there um, would have enormous success um, in their careers, whether it was orchestra or beyond. And I just heard of, you know, so many percussionists in top orchestras that had gone through New World. And to me, it was like the dream to um get into the program after college and i was so lucky to do so and it's been one of the greatest privileges to be a fellow here
0: what's the atmosphere been like uh leading up to these uh, performances this weekend
10: oh as you can probably imagine it's been an incredibly emotional time especially for some of us departing fellows whose time is up uh, at the end of the season and it's just so incredibly special um for us to spend this time with michael tilson thomas one of the greatest minds of our generation um every little you know comment he makes in rehearsal whether it's to you or another section um is just so such a golden nugget filled with so much knowledge <laughs> um
0: has that happened this week to you uh, in the percussion section
10: <laughs> um he actually had me demonstrate a rhythm for the rest of the orchestra that um is used in the charm the the kind of um, funeral march, and the rhythm goes dun, 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 dun. And uh, M- MTT really wanted me to demonstrate it um, because, as a, as a drummer, this is something that's really close to me, and uh, just a really important. It's a really important rhythm in the first movement, especially because it really sets the tone um for the rest of the movement so that was pretty fun <laughs> to get called out like that
6: marcelina you're talking about the Mahler five that's the the Mahler fifth the symphony number five which is being performed tonight and tomorrow correct yes if you can please come out
10: and tomorrow's <laughs> performance is a wall cast so you can enjoy a nice picnic outside
0: uh the the second voice there alicia zuckerman our editorial director at wlrn uh who, alicia you have spent uh a fair amount of time over the years with MTT, interviewing him in a lot of different uh, uh, forms. Uh, Share with us why this is the final weekend for him as artistic director.
6: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been 34 years. It's, it's a sad reason in, in a lot of ways. I mean, he announced in March, uh, he confirmed that he does have a form of brain cancer that is quite aggressive. It's, he said in March that it was in check, um, but that the recurrence is the, is, is, not, is the rule rather than the exception. And so he, he decided to make this call now to become the Artistic Director Laureate, Um, And hopes to continue conducting some concerts, um, but really stepping back from a lot of the the day-to-day work that he does and the sort of bigger picture work that he does with the orchestra. Although, knowing him, he certainly will continue to have uh, a great influence on the orchestra. And and that'll, I mean, that'll, that's, this is a huge part of his legacy, as well as the San Francisco Symphony, where he was artistic director for 25 years. Yeah,
0: describe his style. I mean, as I said, you've, you've spent some time with him. You've interviewed him over the course of several years. How would you describe his style as a as a conductor, as yeah, a leader?
6: God, I mean, the first time I interviewed him was probably 16, 17 years ago maybe, yeah. something like that, and then in New York and was lucky enough to end up here uh, to really see his style up close with New World Symphony, and it's remarkable. I mean, he is such an open musician in terms of the way he thinks about music. He loves music from so many different angles and so many different forms. I mean, in one interview, he went deep into talking about the Beach Boys and (laughs) what a big influence the Beach Boys were on him in the 70s you know as a young musician uh, in the 60s and you could even hear that in some of his original compositions but watching him conduct and watching him rehearse with an orchestra he has just this like it's such a youthful energy and and You know, Jordan Levin is with us, too, and we're going to hear from her in a second. But we were just talking about this, like his energy and Marcelina, I think you must feel that so, so up close. You know what that energy feels like. Um, He just has this way of conveying that incredible passion for the music. And one of the most important things, and this is the case here in Miami, as well as with San Francisco, is he has he. It's so important to him to make sure that audiences and musicians are experiencing contemporary classical music, modern classical music, music by so many different contemporary living composers mm-hmm. or twentieth century composers. I have to say, including Steve Reich, who wrote the who whose piece is our theme music mm-hmm. for this very show right,
0: <laughs> right, right. it's 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 a full canon of of uh, composers over centuries right including certainly more contemporary works that some orchestras some symphonies may feel a little bit less inclined for various reasons
6: right and one of those big reasons is economics right. it's hard to fill it, <laughs> right, it is right. and i can tell you firsthand from the concerts that i attend i go to the sounds of the times concerts which are the you know contemporary music concerts it's harder to fill those seats yeah. and it really takes moxie to stick to your guns and to say like no, this is important. Like musicians need to experience this and audiences need to yeah. experience this. And we're going to do it, even if it's harder to fill seats.
0: Jordan Levin is with us. Jordan, uh, arts writer, longtime uh, Miami Herald's arts critic. Jordan, thanks for creating some time on this Friday for us.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: How, how, how would you describe uh, Michael Tilson Thomas's uh, legacy and what he has meant for the Miami arts environment?
9: So Michael Tilson Thomas was an integral part of the birth, the explosion of culture in Miami in the 80s. So in the 80s, the city was coming out of a really terrible time, cocaine cowboy days, Mariel Boatlift, Liberty City riots. And one of the solutions that leaders here saw was to get culture going to get the arts going. There were almost no arts in Miami then. And almost every major arts institution in Miami was started in the 80s. Miami City Ballet, New World School of the Arts, uh, Young Arts, the Book Fair, the Mm -hmm. Film Festival, and New World Symphony. So Ted and Lynn Arison, who were the first and biggest arts patrons in Miami, they started Young Arts And then they got the idea to start a training orchestra. And the first leader of young arts had been the dean at the art school at the University of Southern California. And he said, well, I have this star graduate, Michael Tilson Thomas. At that point, he was already conducting major orchestras. But because MTT knew this new leader of young arts. He said, well, this is gonna be a serious place. This is gonna be a serious organization. This is something that I can get involved in. And what he brought with him besides his incredible talent was also, he was really adventurous tune to the new. He was always, from the time he was a teenager, he was leading, you know, premieres by Stravinsky and Stockhausen, and he loved John Cage, he loved everything experimental. And he brought that attitude with him. You know, if they had yeah. gotten somebody else, New World Symphony would have been a very, very different kind of organization. But that's such a good I,
6: point. Yeah, that's such a good point, Jordan.
9: And he just loved this stuff. He never apologized for it being difficult or avant-garde he never used the word avant-garde he used like beautiful luscious specific words like elegant and post-punk and 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 he loved this stuff he got excited about it
0: yeah Marceline I'm wondering from your perspective as a as a fellow how how have you encountered that new work not the not the usual canon that I imagine a orchestral fellow would be would be accustomed to
10: Yeah, I've done a lot of new music um, performances here uh, as a fellow and also um, uh, on my own um, with my trio and um, it's something that's very integral to our experience here. Oftentimes it's tied into other regular concerts, but also we have separate concerts where we've collaborated with conductors like Matthias Pincher, who's, uh, you know, really skilled um, conductor, but also new music um, person. And it's really um, a great learning experience. I mean, I, I really don't like the. I mean, the word "new music" I feel like is uh, it's just like really reductive for obviously what we're trying to say. And uh, you know, we often think like, oh, very very contemporary, you know, kind of stuffy music, and that's totally not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, um, new music, you know, spans a great great. Um, a great deal of kind of genres as well and so i've gotten to play um new music but for example collaborate with a tabla player Zakir hussein here last year hmm. and he wrote a piece for the percussion ensemble so we got to um learn a lot about traditional indian classical styles um and we've also done a lot of rice concerts and things of this nature and so it's Especially as a percussionist, that's usually our time to shine in new yeah. music. Unfortunately, yeah.
8: yeah.
9: Unfortunately,
10: yeah. you know, uh, we do have a newer uh, instrument, so we, we weren't written for by, for example, you know, Mozart. But um, we do have some some great uh, things to play in a lot of this modern pieces. So we really get kind of pushed to our limits as percussionists there. But it, it's all it's all a bunch of fun.
0: We'll see you in the percussion section this weekend, Marcelina.
10: Yes, I will be. <laughs> and Luis, I, I just say. want to
6: add. Jordan, you were talking about this remarkable cultural moment in the 80s. I do want to add that right in the middle of that was the founding of the Miami Heat. I feel like we have to say that. That was 1988.
0: (laughs) That is true. That is true. It's the intersection of arts and culture right here in Miami. Marcelina Suhotska, a percussion fellow at New World Symphony. Marcelina, thanks for sharing your perspective. Best of luck. Break some legs this weekend.
10: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. Jordan Levin, also with us. Jordan, great perspective. I appreciate you sharing uh, many, many years of uh, writing about the arts and uh, being an art critic here with us to give us, shed some light on that perspective of the legacy of Michael Tilson Thomas and New World Symphony. Much appreciated. Uh, Alicia Zuckerman, thank you, as always, for sharing your time. and. The, the many moments of uh, Michael Tilson Thomas and your interviews with us here.
6: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely, and go heat, as well as yes, go, go New heat. World Symphony. Yes, go absolutely, exactly. both. This is the uh, South Florida Roundup here this week. It'll do it for our program, produced by Natu Tway. Engagement editor, Katie Cohn. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director and our guest here talking about New World Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Director of radio operations is Peter J. Merritt. Richard Ives is our technical supervisor. Thanks for calling and listening. I'm Tom Hudson. Our program here on WLRN is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal
7: Specialist. WLRN Public Media.